I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. The future is shaped by people with imagination, creativity, and grit. Ted Tai, the managing partner of National Development, has all of those qualities. We talked to him about some of his current projects and the next steps after COVID. Welcome to TBA Now. I am talking to Ted Tai. He's been a member of the temple for a number of years. And as you know, we're doing our best to connect with members of the congregation who are doing interesting, different kinds of things. And I think that Ted certainly uh, fits into that category. He always has, but I mean, now more than ever. Um, so we're we're feeling really lucky to include Ted in the TBA Now library. So Ted, welcome. Thanks, Rabbi. You know, I think I've done maybe five different podcasts. Um, this would be my first one with a rabbi. So I'm really interested to hear what questions you have that will be uh, interesting to the, to the TBA listeners. Oh, good. Well, I'll, I'll try to keep you on your toes uh, for sure. Go for it. Ted, you were one of the people integrally involved with the uh, renovation and building of Temple Beth Avodah um, in, in the project concluding in uh, 1997. I'm wondering, as you think back on that project, what was your, what was your vision for that work uh, and, and the, how you changed what was to what is? How's it come out? It's incredibly satisfying, and it's and it's 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 been satisfying to walk in and see it, and uh, because it, it still lives, and also to see the changes and the evolution as uh, the building's been improved over the last year. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to enjoy it as much as we will post COVID, but you know that's just really exciting, and it's 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 just it's one of the fun things in my life and my business is just to be able to go around and see a lot of things that you've done uh, over time and that, you know, you can be proud of. So that's been pretty cool. I know you have a family uh, that has made a huge impact on the greater Boston area. So tell us something about your family of origin. Most of them settled in the area. You know, my grandfather settled in Haverhill. He, he came over on the boat he was age six. He came over with his brother, who was age 13, actually bar mitzvahed on the boat, uh, just the two of them, mm. no, uh, no adults. And they, uh, they ended up uh, in the, on the North Shore in Haverhill. You know, from there, he graduated from high school. He had a business in high school. They started on the street selling newspapers and umbrellas and ultimately moved into the shoe business, which was a big thing in Haverhill. That was one side of the family. The other side, my my uh, my grandfather uh, on my mother's side came over, and we always remember the date he pulled into uh, Montreal on uh, November eleventh, nineteen eleven. So it was eleven, 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 
from there, uh, spent most of his time growing up in Lynn and uh, graduated eighth grade. You know, was working from, was orphaned, was working from a young age. So, you know, we, we, we think back and you and I are kind of in the same generation as just like how things have changed uh, for us, for our families, you know, from people we remember and grew up with who, who you know, really had no formal education and very few of the advantages that we have today to, uh, you know, skipping a generation and, uh, and thinking about uh, the way that we and our, our kids live in this, uh, in this world today. When you, when you think back on that every once in a while, it's pretty spectacular. It is. And as equally difficult as it is for you to imagine what it must have been like for this orphan kid and his brother to be getting off a boat in a country where they didn't speak the language, to asking them if they could imagine uh, 100 years after they hit the shore uh, what uh, the world could look like. And um, it would be just as impossible. Uh, and it's interesting that really in world history, there were many, many generations in the Jewish community, as well as just a, a human truth of anthropology that from generation to generation, there wasn't a whole lot going. I mean, you stayed in the same basic place. You lived among your relatives and you grew the crops that your grandfather was growing. Or So it is extraordinary that the world morphs in ways it is truly unrecognizable. The speed of the world is changing, particularly over the last few years, has just been so fast. And, uh, you know, part of what I do professionally and personally is try to see where it's going, try to anticipate it, try to read those trends. Ted, I, I know that you build stuff, but what officially do you do? What's your title? How do you place yourself when asked that question? I do so many different things. Um, so my, my company, which is called National Development, is neither national nor just does development. We're, we're based in, in the Northeast, uh, primarily in Massachusetts, and we're involved with, uh, with development. We own a large construction company. We manage properties, and we are also fund investors. So we raise money and invest in real estate. So I get involved in all of those different things. I have a company of a, about 300 people that uh, I have been as one of the three founding partners back in the uh, mid 1980s. So I've been I've been at it a long time. Draw for us, if you would, a sketch of what you've been up to, particularly with the ink block, uh, which, as I've read about it, reimagines how people live together, um, how people use space, and how that all fits into a larger picture of a city. So, you know, really part of what I do is I have to, I, I have to think about how, how people live, will live, how they work, how they will work, and how they play as well. Try to translate those thoughts into the built environment. That, that's a huge challenge. I, I, I moved from, and Kate and I moved from Newton, you know, a while back to Boston, really because I needed to experience, I needed to kind of walk the walk of, of, uh, of being an urban dweller as I was developing a lot of these new urban concepts. 
and it really does help to, to, to live there and experience it. Ink block, which I kind of call my, my PhD project in a, you know, a long career of working in real estate was the former, uh, headquarters of the Boston Herald. And interestingly enough, one of my grandmothers grew up in that neighborhood of the South End when it was a residential area in in the uh, early part of the 20th century. It had become an industrial area, and it was really kind of dying on the vine, as was Ted, Boston Herald. If I, if I can interrupt you for a second, yeah. how does that transition happen where a um, residential area converts into an industrial zone. What, what what was the process? And is there sort of a larger understanding of that? Well, one of the cool things about being in Boston is there's so much history. And anytime you look at a project or look at a new, think about, a, conceive a new development, you really start with the history. So that area of the South End back in the 1800s was actually harbor. It was decided that we needed more land. We were going to fill it. So trains of fill came in actually from Needham and Beacon Hill, and, and they filled the area and created the South End. When it started out into the, in the 19th century and well into the uh, mid-20th century, it was a traditional neighborhood, and that had where people lived, and it had stores usually on the first level and four levels above, and theaters and schools and and that kind of, that neighborhood sort of grew up that way organically there was a period in Boston and in the US as well um which is probably one of the dark programs uh the federal government ever put together called urban renewal and it was really well intentioned and in many ways a complete failure and what urban renewal did, both in the South End and in the West End, both of which had very large Jewish populations at the time, was it, it, it provided federal money to demolish neighborhoods. And so the government went in and just cleared blocks and blocks of land. And, you know, the, one of the best case, one of the best known cases is the West End. We're starting where the Boston Garden is today. And going all the way up to where Boston City Hall uh, is located today, which was called Scully Square, the wrecking ball just took everything down. And, you know, the question was, what came back? So you had these great, vibrant neighborhoods and people moved further out into Mattapan and Dorchester and Roxbury and Hyde Park and other places. But what replaced them? And in the South End, it was really average industrial buildings, a newspaper plant, a bakery, a warehouse, an electrical supply. And those were built in the 1950s. And they had a very short, relatively short lifespan because by 2012, we were already demolishing them. So those buildings were there for maybe 60 years. And so neighborhoods really go through generations as well. You know, when you're getting back to Ink Block, Ink Block was a chance for me to sit down and say, what should this next generation look like? If you had a canvas that was a whole city block, 
what would you see there? What should that next 60 or 100 years look like? And, you know, when I do a project like that, I actually sit down sometimes on the beach or a quiet place and almost write the story. And you start with a story and then you try to bring the story to realization of uh, what it looks like. In that case, seven different buildings that have uh, uh, evolved, the last one being built right now over a period of really about seven years. They include you know, apartments and condos and hotel and this uh, new thing we could talk about called co-living, which is the one of the next generations of housing. Clearly, you need to do homework so that it's more than just a painting, but ends up being something real and tangible. What are the things you have to bring to that project before you launch? Well, I think with, with, with any new project, you need to, you know, I, I found it's really helpful to, to live it. So, you know, to live in an urban environment and understand what that's all about. To be able to know how to post something on Instagram, so I, you know, understand what what social media is about. To really stay current with everything going on in the world, whether that's understanding how a life science company uh, manufactures its product, or how Amazon warehouses and distributes uh, things. To how people are shopping, to going to the spin studio every day, which which I actually do. Being out there and experiencing it is so critical to what I do. So y- you must spend an enormous time, in addition to being on meetings X hours a day, um, you must be uh, Googling things all the time or having your staff bringing you know, raw data that they're finding. Yeah, I I work with a really talented group of people. So, you know, every good project has to have a strong financial underpinning. Um, you know, we have to go pitch it to lenders and institutional investors. And, you know, just really important that you know your stuff and that you're on your game. So as you're conceiving of the story that you're writing... What is the, the grand dream behind it all? What is the set induction for the work? There's always, the fi- there's always a financial piece, right? It has to make sense financially. So we're in business. Sure. Everything has to hold up financially. That's probably a, a place to start. But what I wanted to do in that particular case was bring back what was there in the 19th century, that great fabric of a neighborhood the retail on the first floor, the grocer, the theater, the arts, the the sense of neighborhood, walkability, livability, those were all things that in this neighborhood where we used to joke that the sagebrush was rolling down the street and is and um not too far wrong in saying that. Um, that that it was a place where people could live. And so how do you think about those things? Well, you say, how do you take a five-foot sidewalk and make it a 30-foot sidewalk so that people can move in and out of buildings, so that you can have cafe feeling? How do you bring in businesses that feel local, that will turn the lights on 18 hours a day so there's a feeling of safety and neighborhood? 
we literally brought back the concept of putting retail under residential because that's the way it was. And there's there's something really nice about being able to walk downstairs and go out your building and go have a cup of coffee or go work out in a um, spin studio or you know have a local restaurant that um, where they know your name. We created 10 different businesses and then Whole Foods and lots of outdoor space. And one of the things that I, that I think is, is, is really unique and was a great, great spot for people to go check out, uh, even in a COVID environment, is we also had an area across the street, which was under a lot of the highway area that was created by the Big Dig and fenced off scene of a lot of drug activity, a lot of homeless folks uh, kind of making their way in there. Really not a very nice place. And we ended up leasing that from the state for a 35-year period and converting it to an arts park. So we, 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 we took all of the big concrete walls and worked with uh, local and even some national artists, used those as a canvas and created this amazing mural park that uh, opens to the city um, that was just Boston Magazine, just named it the, the best outdoor museum in, in Boston. It's a real opportunity to bring lots of different people together. Our artists are dominated by people of color. We just did a big span that we had painted by an artist to support Black Lives Matter. It, it, it's a, it was a great contribution to a multicultural city and, uh, and took a huge negative and made it part of the fabric of the city, which was a ton of fun. As you're describing this, I'm wondering a couple of things. First, as you describe the notion of hopping down the stairs and having literally uh, all around you options for food, for entertainment. Were you thinking of a particular age slash socioeconomic range for people to be living in the apartments above? Yeah, the people who came there first, we, we thought of, we kind of profiled them as pioneers, uh, people wanting to move into a developing neighborhood. What's interesting is that the, the rate of development around us has been so rapid that other developers have come in and the neighborhoods gentrified a lot. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that we deal with as developers and also as citizens in, 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 in the Boston area is affordable housing. How do we not create that gentrification that forces people out? And so in Boston, there's an, what's called an inclusionary bylaw, which means that uh, when you develop 13% of your units are set aside for people who are at 50, generally at 50 to 80% of, uh, of the median income. So that I think is a, is a terrific policy and it, it has allowed uh, a lot of people who might have otherwise, although we were really industrial, but who are part of that area to stay in that area and to uh, and to be part of uh, of what what we've created. And what about uh, age? Uh, is this a place where uh, senior citizens like us, where we could? Uh... <laughs> well, it's you know it's a mix. It's a mix. I, I would say on the apartment side, most 
you know, our average age tends to be in the uh, 30 to 40 range working in the city. But we also built two condominium buildings. And those pioneers, those people who came in from the suburbs who said, you know what, I'm living in a big house. My kids are out on their own. I'd like to experience city living again. We have a lot of those people who have come back in. And at least in my generation, we got married a little younger. We kind of moved on and had kids a little younger and maybe didn't have that time to experience all the uh, the fun of urban living. And I think a lot of people say, you know what? I miss that. I'd like to come back and try it. number of our friends have done it. I also have a lot of friends who are scared to do it. You know, just uh, you get very comfortable in suburban lifestyle. So it's it, it's really a mix. And that's what's nice. And, you know, I, I can go to a neighborhood association meeting now and just see this great mix of younger, older people, people who have moved from the suburbs, people who have moved from the city. And that's uh, that's what that's what makes a good neighborhood and good community. In many places in the city, you have restored properties. There's a sense of the history of the building. So I saw a great picture in the ink block uh, where it says uh, the herald, the, the, the banner the, is still above the doorway um, or on a lintel. Uh, in, and, and I thought, well, what a, what a great touch. And, and does this represent a sort of deeper philosophy for you about the use of old structure for new projects? So I've, I've had a particular fondness for preserving history and saving relics uh, from different buildings just as reminders sometimes when you can't save the, the whole building. And some examples of that, in Newton, uh, we developed a project in Newton Corner on the site of the old Newton Public Library. And the seal of the city of Newton used to uh, sit above the door of the library. And I actually carefully preserved the seal, and it is now on a wall that if you look very carefully when you go through Newton Corner, you'll see, you'll see the old seal of the city um, sitting on the wall. In Cleveland Circle, we developed a new project on the site of the old Circle Cinema, which had seven-foot-high letters on it that spelled out Circle that were near and dear to a lot of people. We saved those letters, restored them, and they sit on top of our new building um, that sits right in Cleveland Circle. People who remember the Hilltop Cows at the Hilltop Steakhouse, I heard the Hilltop was closing. I, I called and I got a hold of somebody and I said, I will buy those cows. I sent somebody with a pickup truck that day and those cows are now grazing at our project up in Linfield called Market Street Linfield. The Herald sign was saved. That's fabulous. And I I think really exemplifies, as you've described your work, the the notion of balancing a respect for history uh, along with a, a sense of um, creative, um, not even reuse, but a creative, a new creative direction for where you want to go. Ted, could you maybe talk more generally about the redevelopment of that? That is, as you're suggesting, uh, Boston is just booming. the The cost of housing is 
skyrocketing. I'm wondering specifically as regards issues of of race in in Boston, which you know is a classically painful part of our past and our present. What's the role of developers like you and in the greater Boston community to try to turn some of the most egregious uh, racism uh, away and creating something new? What what's the history and current responsibility, do you think? Well, the history we could devote probably five podcasts to, um, but the current responsibility is huge. I mean, we, we've, we've, we have seen in Boston, you know, areas of the city, let's say the seaport, which is fairly recently developed with very, very low, um, you know, minority residents. Um, and so, I think our firm and many others right now are engaged in in real um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And there are a lot of ways we can go at it. And you know, amongst them, um, you know, we we also are not just a development firm. We also uh, are one of the larger general contractors in the city. You know, how do you help small businesses, uh, whether they're architects, whether they're contractors, whether they're subcontractors, how do you, how do you help them get in the game? And we're, we're seeing more and more requirements that that happens. Employment goals when you're building projects, team goals when you're bidding on projects, uh, looking for uh, uh, minority participation. And then, you know, we as a firm also need to look to where we can help in the city. How can we, you know, how, where do you invest your philanthropic dollars? And I think a lot of firms are stepping back and re-looking at that and saying, you know, how can we help make things happen? We chose uh, a couple of years ago uh, an, an amazing uh, firm in the city, uh, a nonprofit in the city, called More Than Words that works with um, inner city kids who have been caught up in the, either in the uh, foster care or, or judicial system um, and, and creating a business. And we devoted two years to helping them move into the space that some might remember as the medieval manor and project managed it and really supported the organization. We're working right now with a, another nonprofit that works with adolescents who are struggling with addiction and trying to find work with them to create a new uh, home for them so that they can do some residential programs. So active involvement, looking for places where you can really contribute time, energy, and expertise. Can't do it everywhere, but um, there there are so many opportunities to do that. And then investment. Where are you investing in the city? How can you spread your dollars so that you're not just doing it in the financial district, but you're doing it in other places that have that have need? What do you think of the direction the city's going right now? I haven't even asked you the COVID questions yet, but um, just thinking more generally, uh, we have an acting mayor, a black woman, uh, which... Again, thinking we were talking at that start of uh, our conversation about what you could never imagine uh, if you had asked someone 25 years ago, would there ever be a, a black woman uh, sitting uh, at City Hall in Boston um, in the, the, the office of the mayor? And uh, 
there she is, uh, a powerful woman uh, who I think, well, she stated she she wants to be more than acting uh, and wants that job. I, I think it looks, at least from the outside, that that's some real significant statement about the character and the future direction of the city. I'm wondering how that looks to you and the future of the city looks to you. Well, I think it's, you know, Boston has become a minority majority city, um, like, like many urban cities have become. And um, you know, I think the acting mayor comes from a, a pretty diverse city council, um, which uh, she happened to be the president of the council. And, um, and when Mayor Walsh left to go to Washington, she was elevated. But you look at the field right now um, of who is running for mayor of Boston, I don't ever remember a more talented field, and there has never been a more diverse field. So you've got, you know, an incredibly talented, you know, doctor and 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 who has uh, has roots in Puerto Rico and uh, in in John Santiago. You've got a black man in John Barros, who's the city's economic develop uh, development head. You've got Anissa Asabi George, who is an Egyptian American background. You've got Andrea Campbell, who is uh, a black woman, uh, and you have Michelle Wu, who is an Asian American woman, and they're all and 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 I've had the pleasure of working with all of them, and they're all incredibly smart people. They all come from different places, but all really incredibly smart people. I mean, that's unbelievable that we have that group to to choose to to work to work with, um, and ultimately to choose from. And it will change the direction of the city. We have had nothing but white men for a long time. I, I try to look at the talent and, uh, and, and the real talent and real conviction of this group, and that makes me pretty excited about um, about the future and where the where the city is going. Do you think economically uh, the city is looking like it has the potential to keep growing? It it does, and you haven't asked the COVID question yet, and 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 I think the COVID, and we can talk about that if you like, but the COVID, the COVID outcomes uh, and the COVID impacts long term are going to change a lot of things, and and that's believe me, that is that that is the question that everyone is asking right now is is you know how is that going to change things and particularly the way we work. I think um, one of the, the there are two things that are influencing the city's real estate right now, and real estate is always influenced by jobs and employment. And one is the incredible life science boom that's happening. Um, Boston has become, without question, the life science uh, capital of the world, and it goes to our great educational institutions here that produce uh, really smart people. Ted, can I interrupt Was that, so I've been watching that too, and, and the developments happening uh, in Newton at Riverside, right. uh, increasing space. Were there a couple of people that got together and put their heads together and said, we can make this happen? How did, was this through just the cruel of of time and expertise in universities, like how planned is this development? Yeah, it's not so planned, but it's 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 a it's an evolution that has accelerated quickly, and it 
you know, it start it kind of starts with Harvard and MIT to a large extent. And you know, Harvard really with the Longwood medical area that became mature and filled. MIT really being the uh, fuel behind what's happened in Kendall Square and Cambridge. And these companies like collaboration and they like being in clusters. So they tend to flock to one another. So we're putting all these smart people and we have all these great researchers and professors at the universities. And then we have this COVID thing hit and we have all these breakthroughs in science. And I think we have a, I think we have 120 different companies in Boston right now working on different vaccines, which is incredible. So what you're seeing is that I'm working on five life science projects now myself, is that now Alston is big and Watertown is big and West Cambridge and the Alewife area is big, moving to, to South Boston and the seaport, and then pods like Newton and even Waltham. The demand is there. The science is moving at uh, an, an unbelievably quick pace, and these companies like to be together. And so that's what's, uh, if you turn on your TV, I mean, amazing to see. If you've seen the commercials, Middlesex County, New Jersey is advertising in Boston to try to pull companies from Boston yes. to Middlesex County, New Jersey. It's unbel unbelievable. Um, so we we are we are in a position now. We we cannot build and permit these projects fast enough. Do you think that the uh, what I would call the lagging behind of national policy regarding healthcare could have a negative effect on the continued growth of this area of um, life sciences? I, I, I don't. I think it's, it, it will proceed no matter what the national policy is. I mean, we just went through four years of, of Donald Trump, and if we can get through that, we can probably get through just about anything. So, Amen. Um, you know, hearing uh, uh, it's been much, even in the early days, the Biden administration has been uh, much more encouraging of science. You know, I think we should only hope that that continues. Okay, so we we did begin to broach the whole COVID question and give us a sense of the timing, Ted. You're in the the midst of all kinds of building, and then then everything, I would assume, at least at a period, grinds to a complete halt. Can you just talk us through what that was like for you and what you imagined was going on? Yeah, it was. You know, obviously, it it affects everything, and it 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 caused a stop in what we were doing and. Like uh, like you have with services, how do I convert a company of 300 people to remote operations over the course of a year? So really frightening. I think what we the only thing we know for sure is that we don't know yet what the long-term impacts are. But we can see trends, and we can also, we're far enough into this, we can see the reversal of some trends, and I don't know how long it, something has to want to be considered a real trend but you know early on and just talk about a couple of areas that I that I touch there was this great flight to the suburbs I can't live in the city anymore I lost my job I don't have to go to my office I'm moving home with my parents I'm lonely why should I stay in the city so there was a great flight to the suburbs with everyone looking to move back home or buy homes in the suburbs. And so 
there were articles about the end of the city. All of a sudden, that started to reverse because it started to come back. And so I think I can say the city is not dead yet. We're seeing the reversal of the trend right now around living. The office, though, I think the office is will be permanently affected by COVID because we've all discovered we can do things differently. We can work. We, we, even though we don't like it every day, we can sit and work from our computers at home. And you know what? It kind of works and we're productive and we don't have to get in the car and move from meeting to meeting and it feels safe. And I think people have also found that they can maybe balance their lives a little bit better. So we, we we're seeing companies that are saying, you know what? We're, we're, we're going to sublease our office space. We're not going back to the office. And I think what I spend a lot of time thinking about, as do others, is what does this office of the future look like? There'll be fewer people there. They may be there on different schedules. It may be sort of a hybrid of what we've known in the past. But we're all going to work differently because we figured it out and we can. And that might have some good lifestyle changes for people. You know, personally, I miss the collaboration of touching and seeing and being with people and and that you can't do on Zoom. That 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 has to be done in person. So I think that will change. It's changed retail a little bit as well. Uh and and certainly has had an awful effect on restaurants. But restaurants are coming back and we like restaurants. We like the sociability of being able to go to games and go to clubs and go to restaurants and and see people and be with people and that 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 will come back, but boy, it's become very easy to sit down on your sofa and open your laptop and buy whatever you need on Amazon versus going to a shopping mall or visiting a city. So retail, reta- re- retail will definitely have some fundamental changes going forward. I spend a lot of my time in senior housing as well. That industry has really been hard hit by uh, by COVID, but it's. I think it's coming back for all good reasons and, and in different ways. So we, we're, out, we're not out of it yet. We don't know, but, but there will be some changes going forward. In part of your project, you're building retail uh, storefronts. And I'm wondering from when you planned it to current execution, have things morphed for you? Well, I can tell you that I've spent a good part of the last year meeting with, talking to retailers, trying to keep them in business. It's been incredibly difficult, particularly for small businesses and restaurants and you know people that we've worked with. And they call up and they just say, I, I can't pay the rent. And you understand it. We've worked really hard to try to come, get, let those people come out on the other side and give them a chance to survive. But looking forward, it's really hard. I'm, I'm one of the developments that I'm working on is the redevelopment of the Midtown Hotel, which is across from the Prudential Center in Boston. And it's a full block and it will also have retail at its base. And I go to a neighborhood meeting and they say, so tell us who's going to be the, your retailer. And, I, and I'm saying, well, when I finish this in three years, I wish I could tell you because I don't know. I don't know what the history of this will be. You know, we, we, we hope that we can find ways to, to make it work. But uh, 
it's, it remains to be seen how far back we will come. So uh, you, you have to be a gambling man. <laughs> you know, I, I am not a gambling man except when it comes to, uh, to business. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing about what I do is, you know, being able to envision a building, a project, um, work really hard on it and see it come to life in a relatively short period of time. Um, that's the cool part. The hard part is that there's incredible risk in doing it. And, um, you know, just going through a, a, I spend a lot of my evenings now on my computer screen at permitting meetings, dealing with neighborhood groups, dealing with boards from different communities, and, um, and trying to express the visions uh, in a way that people understand and embrace. But inherently, it's a risky business. In these meetings that you're on, do you sense due to COVID or anything else, uh, or do you tend to feel uh, you're in a more hostile environment when you're making presentations or, or are, is there a trend in the other direction? That's a great question. We, we talk about that often. So pre-COVID, um, oftentimes I would be in a, in a hot, small room with lots of people. And, you know, there's a general tendency of people to not embrace the new, you know, it's the, the, NIMBY thing that comes out a lot. It's just sort of the way things work. And so, you know, been in that room with people shaking their fists and getting up and, um, and now it's in, it's, it's on a Zoom platform. So it is feeling actually in some ways more moderated and more controlled in a good way. And part of the debate was would that cut off uh, the ability of people to participate in government and in discussions. And interestingly, I think it's been the opposite because as opposed to going down to the school gym to sit in a meeting, people can actually go home and have dinner and then go sit and turn on their computer. So we've seen you know, 50, 60, 80 people at meetings because they can, because the access is a lot easier. So there's 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 pluses and minuses both ways. Well, I suppose part of the improvement also as it relates to using Zoom is it's enforced civility. You can't have five people yelling at the same time. That's true, but one of the, and, you know people say what's what's in, in what you do, which what I do, which is work with communities and title a lot of these projects over time. What's the biggest change I've seen? It's been social media and the abuse of social media and, you know, going into a, 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 a community um, where kind of one person can take out, try to take over the discussion, you, you know, it, it, just putting anything out there, whether it's true or not. Um, and it can be incredibly hurtful. And we've seen that in so many areas, but it, it, it is, it is so true. Um, I, you know, I, I can, propose a major project and have three opponents and they put out a website and a blog and, you know, a Facebook page. And, um, and it's, you, you don't want to be in the position of counteracting every, everything that someone says. 
that can be incredibly difficult. It can be nasty. It can be really mean-spirited. And given the increasing place of divisiveness uh, in the culture in general, and as you're suggesting, social media, I think, is the primary means by which that's exercised to get anything done as you have to get it done, which is with collaboration, not just with one particular group, but with a number of different constituencies, I'm sure uh, must be uh, much harder than, you know, figuring out the square footage of uh, what you want to build. It's hard. And, you know, I always say I came from a small town. You're as good as your reputation. And, you know, if I've done 50 or 70 or 100 projects over the years, I you, you you always want to leave a positive trail behind you. The first thing I always say is call the last group that I dealt with and see what they think. You know, sense of integrity um, is something that we make sure that passes down through everyone in our organization. And um, sometimes it isn't easy to speak up or to say or do the right thing, but do it anyway. You take that philosophy and are now involved in, I don't know, when I read it, it sounds pretty uh, radical in terms of creating, uh, I wouldn't quite call it a, a kibbutz uh, settlement, but um, a kind of co-living uh, environment. And I was wondering if you would tell us about this and how it figures into your larger vision of urban living and how it works. Yeah, so this may or may not be the next big thing in, in, in living. And I always start and say, it's not for everyone. Um, and uh, I'd never heard it called a kibbutz, but I, there's, there are some good parallels there. Um, so the, uh, co-living is a, is a relatively new concept, and uh, it's an urban concept. And what it does is essentially provides full services to, to, to people who rent in the building. So you will rent a room in an apartment or a studio apartment or one-bedroom apartment that will be fully furnished and fully supplied. And you will have within the building an incredible amount of common area where people can congregate and live and work together has a social coordinator in the building who creates uh, community activities and community feel. Uh, and it has started to spring up around the country. The building that we're doing, which is called Seven Inc., is a 15-story building. We'll have about 180 apartments, two full floors of common areas that we'll have workspaces and a fitness area and a cafe and gaming rooms and actually communal laundry, which is different than we do everywhere else. Um, kitchens where people can um, prepare meals together. One of the really fun things I'm doing there, which I guess I'm announcing it now, is uh, I, I salvage the old scoreboard from the Boston Garden, which is 15 feet tall. It's going to make a, a reappearance in that building. It's going to be its permanent, wow. permanent home. I've, I've, I've collected some crazy things and restored them over my career. So this is the latest. Um, so it, uh, in, in it's walkable to Whole Foods and a whole assortment of restaurants. So 
it's really creating a great social experiment. Um, people do have their own private spaces, uh, but there's a hierarchy. So they they may have a, a room that they sleep in and and uh, and have their desk in, but they share. They may share a kitchen with some other people, and then they may share these larger common areas with a whole lot of people who live in the building. Not for everybody, but excited to to get it started. Is it the young urban professional group that it's primarily going to be the ones you're uh, pitching to? Primarily, but the interesting thing is that it, it not always. We've seen uh, in looking at other models around the country, it might be a, an airline pilot who likes to have a place to stop in and, and, and uh, stay when they're in the city. It might be a couple who might just come in and use the space on weekends who want to just kind of dip their toes into urban living. So it can be a whole mix of people, but we we have this incredibly young, you know, Generation X uh, workforce that's coming into Boston right now. You know, Amazon's building new. We talked about life science. This age group doesn't typically travel with possessions the way we did. And they're very mobile. So being able to come in and have a bed and have a place that's all fit up and um, you're probably spending most of your time out in the community, you know, enjoying uh, uh, working or enjoying the, uh, the, the, the amenities in the city. It, it's a great place to crash and, uh, and, 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 and be able to have a built-in social environment with like-minded people. So if you go back to that neighborhood that existed in the uh, 19th century where you could walk down the street and stream into stores and and meet people this is just the next version of that same thing you've been involved with many many projects in the course of your professional life when you look at it how do you deem you know this was a success. I, I did it. What can give us an example of one of those? I know there are a lot. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting where you are. Um, but what's an example of one that you feel like you really nailed it? Like you understood it and executed, and it's come out even better than you imagined it would. Well, I'd like to think that represents most of the projects that I've done. You know, I think our company has always thought we can we can do good by being successful and making communities better. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about Inkblock. It's it's on a large and small scale. Uh, another project that we're proud of uh, is called Station Landing. It was in a really beat up area of Medford and Wellington Circle, and and we came in and we built a place. And I always think there's a difference between building a building and building a place. And, you know, that particular project was we, we, we had an idea. We created a main street. We connected it to a river. We built buildings alongside of it. We put retail and residential and uh, hotels uh, together. And all of a sudden, it just went from this really kind of crummy area to a nice place. And whether it's that or I, I can, you know, building senior housing. I mean, I, I built senior housing and, and my grandfather moved into it. 
And other than complaining about the food, it was a wonderful experience <laughs> to create a place that your grandfather could actually live in and, uh, and you know, live his life out in, in, you know, in good health and uh, in community. So there's a couple of examples. Ted, what story are you writing right now? What's the, what's the next story for you? <laughs> Working on a lot of different things right now, ranging from um, trying to figure out the next generation of senior housing, which is something that I've been involved with for 25 plus years. What will that look like? How will, how will younger baby boomers want to live? Um, we're working on a really exciting project in, in Lexington right now that um, will combine independent living, assisted living together on a, on a very beautiful site. Thinking about that a lot, thinking about life science a lot, what is what how those buildings will come together. Spending a lot of my time on this Midtown Hotel project, which is across from the Christian Science Plaza, which is really one of the gems of Boston architecturally. This is almost the last building. It is the last building that fits into that plaza. And I have a real responsibility to create some something really good there that's going to last over time and then you know when you have a company of 300 people you think about um you think about what's next and what's coming and um and you try to figure that out and I, i've got a great group of partners and uh that collaboration of figuring that stuff out is is really exciting and we're also trying to pivot um i mentioned you know dei being a, a, a really big thing, um, as well as environmentally, how do we become greener? Where is that ball going in the future? I just uh, traded a, a car I really liked for an electric car because I just felt that was a game I have to I have to be in um, because it's something that we face every day. So, you know, if um, I think the thing that that um, keeps me going and keeps me really active is that. Uh, there are so many changes. I have to stay ahead of them, and I'm really challenged by them. And uh, you know, my started off talking about my grandfather, who uh, in his uh, late 80s was still selling shoes to keep busy. And uh, I kind of think of myself: this is oh, I'm not quite that old, but uh, but but staying in this real estate game because it's really interesting on a daily basis. Well, you've certainly uh, been so successful, and we're so excited to continue to follow uh, your dreams and what they turn into, and uh, looking forward to the world opening up uh, more and more so that we can uh, go down to the ink block and begin to see uh, just the excitement that's going on there. And um, for all the changes that we don't even anticipate yet that you will be uh, banking on in order to uh, build the next uh, important structure for uh, people looking for a comfortable and uh, and safe place uh, to live their lives with their families. Um, Ted Tai, such an honor to have you on today on TBA Now. Such an honor to have you uh, continuing to be such uh, a part of the congregation. And um, we're so happy that you joined us today. So thank you. Thank you. This was this was really fun. I've listened to uh, 
number of the podcasts and it's a real honor as well as chatting with you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to. We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodad.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.